This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urate moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Eric McNulty, and welcome to another edition of Leader ReadyCast. Among the most challenging competencies that develop in those who lead and those who aspire to is self-awareness. We put a lot of emphasis on what to do, uh, the hard skills, yet much less on who to be. And that's so important when you're trying to lead people. Those who are most effective, particularly in the intense pressure of a crisis, are what my guest today calls radically self-aware. It allows them to be both in the moment, yet also transcend the moment. Now, I'm joined today by Dane Dunstan, an executive coach, speech writer, author of the terrific new book, Being Essential, Seven Questions for Living and Leading with Radical Self-Awareness. Now, full disclosure, Dane's been a friend for a number of years now. I've learned a lot from him, and I know you're going to learn from him as well in the next uh, half hour or so. He's been helping leaders become their best for almost three decades and is very grateful he's going to share some of his insights with us. So, Dane, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Hey, Eric. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here and have this conversation. Now, you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, You've been coaching for about 30 years. Why this book? Why now? The book started evolving probably about 2015, 2016, as you say, I had been working with people for a long time, uh, and I started doing some training, teaching people, teaching speech writers how to move into both speech coaching and executive coaching. Um, and as I did that, I, I felt that I needed to sort of have some kind of formula. And it really evolved around these seven questions. And my intention at the beginning was just to have seven es- essays, sort of like Martin Buber, and uh, an essay on each question and why they were important. And as it evolved, it, it got more, a little more complicated than that. But why now? We live in one of the most radically divisive, uh, disruptive times in American history and, and in world history. Not as bad as some other times, but we really need conscious, aware leaders right now. And by aware, I mean a strong sense of self-awareness, a sense of of knowing who they're being at the time, at any time, knowing how they feel. And part of that started for me, go back a little less than a decade, a uh, client who I had worked with as a speech coach had uh, been vaulted into the, uh, the CEO's chair at a very, very large uh, Fortune 500 company. They were 150 at the time. Um, And because the company had been split off into parts, he and his leadership team were suddenly a leadership team of a Fortune 100 company, 150. And he said to me, look, what really is bothering me is everybody's looking at me everywhere I go. Um, I walk down the hallway, I get in the elevator, I can just feel all eyes on me. And I feel they're really reading me for how to be thinking about where we are. Uh, and I don't want to do something where, you know, I crash the stock because I look pissed off. 
So I said to him, okay, two things. Here's what you do. Anytime you get up from your desk or reach for the phone or do anything, ask yourself two questions. And these became the, the foundation of the book. First question is, who am I being? And it's not, it's just very simple. It's not judgmental. It's not who should I be or who do I wish I was? No, in this instant, who am I being? Well, I'm, I'm really, really PO'd. I want to walk down the hallway and rip somebody's head off. All right, really. Then second question is, what do I want? Do I really want to rip somebody's head off? No, I probably want to get some solutions to a problem that was created by, by someone, figure out how to move this forward. Uh, and I'm not going to do that if I'm in a rage. Um, and the thing about that is, is when we ask ourselves who we're being, it changes who we're being. And changing who we're being changes what we want. So that became really the foundation of the book. And so the book is built around these seven questions. Could you walk us through the seven and, and how they fit together? Yeah. Um, and these evolved over, over time. I had given a couple of talks and I, somebody asked me this the other day, where did this book come from? So I went back to my journal and looked. And at one point there were four questions and then it went up to five. Um, uh, I was doing some work in, um, in Rome uh, in 2018 and uh, working with a consultant there who's just a super guy. And he said, I always read Martin Buber's The Way of Man every year. And by the time I had gotten back to the state, he had mailed me a copy. And so I opened it up and in Martin Buber's amazing work, speech he gave in 1947, a series of lectures he gave, um, the very first question was, uh, who am I being? I'm sorry, what do I want? Uh, and he wrote an essay about that, pointed out that in the Bible, that was God's very first question. And I said, well, of course it is. And where am I is the beginning of this. So you start with where am I? And that can be I'm on a plane uh, to London, uh, or it can be I am in a little bit of a dark mood right now, and I'm feeling concerned that things aren't working out. That takes you a little deeper into it. So you, you want to just basically, it's that question is about navigation, finding out where you are and why, which is the second question. Where am I? Why am I here? Um, and the why can be really from two directions. It can be what choices or decisions or actions put me in this place. Or it can be now that I'm here, what am I being called to offer this moment? What is the moment asking of me? So first two questions really about self-location. Um, uh, where am I and why am I here? The second two questions are the ones I mentioned uh, a moment ago. Uh, so given where I am and why I'm here, who am I being and what do I want? Uh, and then the next two questions are really for validation. Um, question five is what wants to happen? Um, this uh, comes a lot uh, from the work of um, Peter Senge and Otto Scharmer, um, looking at synchronicity and how things seem to come at the right time if we are very, very aware of them. So I may want something, but does the world want it right now? Is this the time for me to be looking at that decision or action? What wants to happen? 
the second question is one of the most fundamental questions, according to Einstein, uh, what don't I know? Uh, and that's really just to break us of the habit of thinking we know anything, particularly when you're in, in an introspective mood like this. What don't I know? Uh, and the, the, really the question there is to make sure that there are things you don't know. There, there are times when it's so important to know that. If you and I were on the volunteer fire department out on the Cape, um, we would pull up to a house with smoke coming out of it. And we would be asking ourselves a whole list of things that we didn't know. We would be very clear. Who's in the house? How long has it been burning? Are there any explosives in there or fuel? What, you know, so we'd have a whole list of questions and we wouldn't go into that house or let our, our, let our firefighters go in there until we had some fundamental answers there to those questions. And then the final question is, is a real simple one, real basic. How does this feel? I've gone through these questions. Uh, do I like where I am? Does it feel good? Just kinesthetically, does it feel good? Um, and if it doesn't feel good, then where am I? And you just go back to the beginning and start again. Now, let me be clear. There are times when it's appropriate to run through all seven questions, but uh, it's often that you don't have to run through any of them. You notice that you're, you're not feeling great. You're feeling a little tense and nervous and you go, oh, I don't want that. And you stop. You literally change your mind in that point. So really at the core of that is the idea that we have a choice all we have to know, do is notice where we are, and then we have a choice to ch not be that in that moment. Such an interesting series of questions. Yeah, I think one of the more intriguing ones is what wants to happen. And you talked about that a little bit, but I'd like you to go a bit deeper because so often similar questions are around what do you want to happen? What are you know, you're as if you're you're driving the progress of the world. How do you get executives to let go enough to understand, to step back and be able to accept what wants to happen or be able to feel what wants to happen? Yeah, that's a great question, Eric, because we, particularly in our American society and, and uh, in Western society, we are so driven to make things happen. We're told to go take the troops and take that hill. We just ask, we don't ask why, we just say, okay, how much ammunition have we got? And we blast off to go take the hill. That's, that's how we've always done things. Um, in Asia, there, in East Asia, there is a different kind of attitude, which is, okay, what, what is the temper of the times? What does these times call us to? How should we be thinking about where we are? Um, and so I think that's, that's really critical and it's really critical for us right now. Um, I have a book on my bookshelf uh, titled 1919, The Year Our World Began. Um, and it talks about all the things that were going on in 1919, the end of the First World War, the, uh, uh, the flu epidemic globally, immense changes societally in all of Europe and uh, the United States. Um, technological changes that were coming up, the rise of Nazism and fascism at the same time, um, the stock market doing all this, all these things that created the world that we lived in until uh, 2019, at which that book became uh, 
basically irrelevant. The new title needs to be 2019, the world, the year our world began. Um, so we have to understand that we're living in this age of, of uh, pandemic, uh, of a small war, which has the potential to become a global war, um, uh, supply chain disruption, which is going to affect all of us, it's going to affect our economy, it's affecting everything we want to do, and also a fundamental understanding, I think, that I'm getting from clients of that a global supply chain bringing things from so far away, uh, just in time, ordering the minimum, we get it, we know the next ship's coming in next month with the next set of things we need, that's not going to work. And uh, we need to rethink how all of that is doing. So that's the kind of thinking that's, that's needed right now. And I think it comes from some real introspection. The, the other thing I would say about it is this. Um, one of the ways we can kind of figure out what wants to happen is being aware of who we're being. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, uh, Dane, does this, does this have to do with karma? And I hadn't thought about that, but uh, we were on a, on a podcast and I thought, okay, well, wait a minute. Actually, karma is the right outcomes that come from right action, right? Bad karma is bad outcomes that come from wrong action. But as I thought about it, I thought, wait a minute, that's, that's both incomplete and a little bit dysfunctional because it's leaving out the core of that, which is... Um, who we're being, right? So right mindset creates right action, which creates uh, right outcomes. Um, and if you think about that, if any one of us changes the who we're being, and we fundamentally turn around and we become open-hearted and, and able to observe others and open to others, and we change who we're being, then that changes the people around us. And when the people around us change, they start to have new doors opening for us, which bring new people in to meet us and new opportunities in. And suddenly doors start opening that wouldn't have opened if we hadn't asked the question of who are we being and what wants to happen. It's really interesting. And I think it is, you know, a couple of things, many things come to mind when you talk about that. One is that the, the, constant flow of transactions in our day-to-day -day lives and the you know the, the email the phone calls the the reports the this the that that are yeah. that make it difficult to step back and and take the perspective of uh, of what is happening around you and, and and what wants to happen uh and and then we also get the the constant barrage of of messages particularly here in you know in, in the consumer society uh, that we always we have you know, brands telling us what they want us to be, what they want us to do, uh, and so I think it's a real it's a real challenge to step back and have that perspective. But as you say, I, th I think it's a it's a necessary one. I think when you look at the great social change leaders over time, you look at you look at Gandhi, you look at Mandela, Dr. King, they put themselves in service of what wanted to happen. Yes. You know, I really was a, a um, okay, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not driving this. I am putting myself in service of what I think, what I believe needs to happen, wants to happen. Um, 
and yeah. so it became much more then hence their impact became much more than about themselves but about themselves amplified many many times over yeah and you know it's interesting we we talk about those those characters uh who are so huge um i wrote a or co-authored a book uh, called nanovation about a decade ago which was about uh tata motors and and basically radical radical innovation a radical low cost innovation in asia that was changing the way people thought about how to bring products to market and was really affecting companies like ge and and uh ibm and other companies um and car companies what was interesting was very very early on in the formation of of tata uh which was founded in the 1840s was a textile company but as they started to grow and as uh, they started to build up some some wealth and some power. They became very clear about something that uh, that India would never become a first line nation until uh, uh, they had developed an industrial base. This was the industrial age, right? So they really went to work. Um, they they had uh, plants that made uh, textiles. They needed electricity for those. Uh, so they it basically invented hydroelectric power in India, brought it in. Uh, then they decided they needed steel. They went and found the coal. They found the, the uh, iron deposits. Uh, uh, Jamshetji Tata walked into an office in Pittsburgh one day for a guy who was a, uh, uh, a consultant in the industry. And in his Indian beautiful clothes, convinced this guy on the spot to move to India and help them start a steel business there. So they were real, they were convinced that India would grow and would come out of the colonial period and that that had to happen, that that wanted to happen and that if they followed these things, that the right things would come of them. And in fact, they did. They're an amazing company. Yeah, that's, that's a great story. And it is, it's a, a interesting counterpoint. And I don't want to go deep, in, deep into it here because I don't want to get into politics, but uh, of how many people are looking backwards these days and saying what used to be and that's yeah. both left and right um and, and not looking forward and trying to see what wants to be well I, but and i think without going into the politics we can we can look at right now um the idea that that there are companies out there who are looking around at what wants to happen what needs to happen socially what needs to happen environmentally what needs to happen uh globally and they're actually working to make that happen. And they're very, very serious about it. Um, and I'll just give you one example. We have a client uh, that's a logistics company, uh, RPM uh, Freight Systems. Uh, they're in the middle of an amazing turnaround. Uh, uh, a brilliant uh, young CEO has taken it over and they're just doing great. Um, he just redefined for everyone in the company what their purpose as a company is. It has nothing to do with logistics. Uh, they say that their purpose of the company is to be the North Star in building leadership uh, who will be headhunted away from them and will go out and take really, really brilliant leadership to other companies and other places. Um, and the genius of that is two things. One is there will never be uh, enough seats in that company for all the brilliant people they're going to train. So these brilliant people 
will need to go somewhere um, and will be able to go somewhere and earn more money and then make another company that's just as brilliant as this. So it really is something that wants to happen to that company and, and they're doing great at it. That's great. That's great to hear. You know, another question in among your seven that I think may uh, push people out of their comfort zones is how does this feel? You know, we're not right. used to uh, in business, in public safety, in, in many areas of, of our work lives. Uh, people, you know, keep your feelings at home or put them on the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we yeah, we know the, you know, the the second largest number of neuroreceptors in the body is is in the gut. Right? The greatest numbers in the brain. The yeah. second greatest numbers in the gut, and they are always communicating back and forth uh, via the vagus nerve that right, runs up and down the spinal column. So. What do you see as the essential information that feelings re reveal that, that you can't get through purely rational thought? Yeah, and, and let me be clear that we're not just talking about emotions, right? Like mm -hmm. I finally got in touch with my feelings or you hurt my feelings. Um, we are talking about emotions, but more we're talking about uh, a kind of a kinesthetic sense of the body. I, I really learned a lot about this in, in doing the book because I had to do a lot of research on this, uh, things like the, um, the heart puts out a magnetic field that's something like six times more powerful than the magnetic field our brain puts out. Uh, and if you are having a, um, uh, an, e an EKG, mm -hmm. uh, or no, uh, yeah, an EKG, uh, and I sit down within three feet of you, your EKG will read my presence. Think about that. That's astounding. Yeah, it is. And, and so we, we grew up as a species um, in the plains of East Africa um, being finely attuned to feelings like um, what's happening in that grass over there, right? Um, we've got very, very good at being able to tell whether the grass was being moved by the wind or by um, uh, something moving through the grass that we might not want to encounter. Uh, a few years ago, I, I, was, I live in the, in the hills outside of Austin, Texas, and uh, was walking my dog Dodger, and we came to a big oak tree. And just as we got under the drip line, all the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And I whispered to Dodger, hey, just be quiet, man. We're going to, we might see something. So we stepped in and there about 12 feet off the ground was a knot hole in the tree. And in the knot hole was a screech owl, white face screech owl, just looking at me, um, was very calm. Let me take its picture. And I thought, okay, how is it possible that separated by what, uh, 12 millennia from those plains in Africa? Um, my body still reads the world around me. So if you're a leader, right, of anything, um, you walk into a room, you have to be intensely aware of how it's feeling, what you're picking up. If you're just in your head, you're going to miss important cues. You're going to miss people who need you. You're going to miss people who need to be seen to. Uh, you're going to miss a lot. So that's really the kind of feelings we're talking about. It's really a, what I call a kinesthetic sense of where you are in your mind, in your heart, in your gut, and in physical space.
it sounds like a uh, a great rationale for for taking the earbuds out once in a while and <laughs> putting putting the phone in the pocket to make sure you're actually like but you're actually not disrupting the sensors your body is using to determine what's around it. Yes, and um, uh, being able to even with all the distractions be more attention to, to where those feelings are, are, are coming from. So you've got a headset on, you're flying a helicopter over Manhattan. Um, you're paying attention to how the air feels, how the vibration of the craft feels, but also anything that you should be sensing. If there's something that you missed because your mind was locked in, in your head uh, rather than in your fingers and hands where you're feeling stuff, you may miss something really important and then suddenly you're in a craft that's going down into the water. No, that's right. I mean, and being, being fully attuned to what's happening in the moment there, again, it's, it's difficult, but it is a skill I think you can cultivate. You, 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 no, it is. It, and it's just a practice. It really, it, we are wired for it. We just don't pay attention for it. Mostly we've never been taught for it unless we're very, very specific things. I, I have a, a friend who's a, my, my coach and sort of my Zen master, uh, Dr. Frank Allen. Frank is a, uh, uh, a psychotherapist and, and an expert in this kind of thinking. Uh, he's also a, uh, a grand master in three different Japanese martial arts, one of which is Aikido. And in Aikido, um, if I throw a punch at you and you're an Aikido master, First of all, I'm an idiot to do that. Second, <laughs> second is you will not, all you will do is sort of gently move back on your heels and shift and turn your shoulder. And I will fall on the floor because I've missed you and you've used my energy to throw myself down. Um, so that kind of intense feeling really occurs in uh, gymnasts. How does, how does a, a diver come off of what is it, a, a 40 foot height and, and you know, do all, all the twists, bends and stuff and still go straight into the water with your toes pointed. I mean, how do you do that? You do that be, because you're able to have the kinesthetic sense of where your body is in space and time. So interesting. Yeah. And a lot of our listeners uh, are people who are interested in what it takes to lead in crisis situations. How do you best, briefly, how do you best apply what we've talked about and what's in the book to those really intense situations when there's time pressure, there may be media pressure, there's, there's a, a lot of scrutiny and, and, and everything is heightened. How do you best apply your approach there? Well, yeah, so the first thing is, is knowing and sensing that that's where you are, right? And, and putting some space around your mind there. So you, you literally have to um, pull back from the edges. That, that CEO I was talking about, I, I gave him a, a breathing exercise, which he found really helpful. I said, when you're trying to sense how you feel, would you take a really deep breath and then imagine you're blowing it out through the roof of your mouth and imagine in your cranium, you're blowing up a balloon. So, okay, so he does it. And, and he imagines that as that balloon expands in his cranium, it just pushes the thoughts out to the edge. And that little bit of spaciousness in the mind is what gives you the ability to, to make choices and make the right choices. You know, you know this better than I do because you've studied 
so, so many things, but you've, you've shared stories and in your book, uh, you've shared them where somebody, uh, you know, a bomb goes off or uh, a plane crashes and somebody suddenly realizes that they are in the middle and everybody's looking at them and they're in charge and they may have never been in that kind of a situation before or one that serious. They have to immediately be able to get out of their lizard mind, out of the free, uh, flight or fight uh, or freeze and sort of come up, as you say, from the basement and say, okay, let me take a big deep breath here. Here's what matters most in this moment. Let's go do it. That just comes with practice. Yes. And I think it comes with that. So the first question of where are you? Yeah. Um, and, and why are you here? And in the, you're not, you're not going to take hours to contemplate those two questions. It may be fractions of a second, but yes. that with a deep breath can center you enough to be able to, to know what to do. Yes. And, and it is a fraction of a second. Like I said earlier, I will do the seven questions when I have the leisure to do that. The first day of autumn, I might sit and say, hey, you know, what, what's going on? Where am I at this point in my life? I do that a lot driving to the airport before dawn. It's like, okay, let's just take stock of where I am. But in the moment of a, a, a conversation or the moment of a coaching call, for instance, when I'm working with somebody and I can see that they're struggling with something, I don't have time to say, where am I? You know, it's like, I just, who am I being? Watch that. I just saw her, her face change. Uh, let me just be real, real interested in what wants to happen now. Well, I think, it, and central to your whole approach, because it's based on questions, is is that, uh, that awareness and, and knowing that that awareness can always increase and improve um, you can always be, be more aware and, uh, the constant questioning, I think certainly attunes you to that. Yeah. And, and by the way, this is not about being perfectly aware. <laughs> yeah. You can never be perfectly aware, right? That's <laughs> it's, it's about understanding that, that we are all human beings with minds filled with fear that are trying to chatter away at us and, and just getting to a quiet, essential self inside of ourselves where we can go, okay, wait a minute, stop the noise. How do I deal with this? What does this moment need from me? So now I've got a final question for you. One I ask all of my guests, because the world is kind of crazy right now. What gives you hope? Two things. One is in the history of Homo sapiens, we have always made it out alive. Not all of us, not all the time, but as a species, we have a tremendous survival record. Um, that's going to be challenged quite a bit right now uh, because we can't just simply leave a place that we've devastated and move to Australia and then devastate it. But what is there is the ability to just remember that for all the terrible things that happened in the 20th century and the 19th and 18th, um, we keep progressing um, for all of the reactionary forces to, to democracy. Democracy keeps progressing. Um, in 1919, uh, the average life expectancy was about 45 years. That was partly affected by the, the flu epidemic. But uh, average, last time I looked, 
it was about 82 years for us now. So nearly doubled in a century. Education uh, has grown hugely. Uh, poverty has decreased hugely. Uh, the, the biggest area we've got to work on is uh, the environment and what we're doing to our planet. Um, and we'll work on that by working on ourselves and figuring out how to solve these problems and who we need to be in this moment of human history. And that's a great on which we're going to close today. Dane Dunstan, thank you so much for, for sharing all this wisdom with us. The, the book is called Being Essential, Seven Questions for Living and Leading with Radical Self-Awareness. You can find more about Dane at reservoir.llc uh, and take this wisdom, put it to use, ask yourself seven questions, and always, when the moment strikes, be ready to lead. Thank you. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead. <laughs>